Hello. Hey, John. Hi, Dan. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Hmm. What's uh, going on over there? Not too much. Not too much. What about up there? Uh, oh, well, let's see. Uh, not very much, you know, actually. Just relaxing, taking a nice yeah. relaxation day. Yeah, just, you know, just relaxing. I have a question for you, something that came up earlier in the day. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I was getting some lunch, and there were some people in the military. Uh, I'm going to say Army. Okay. And uh, there is an you Army didn't, base. You didn't here. ask. No, but I'm pretty sure it's Army. I can, I can tell. And I don't think we have a Navy base here. We've got an Army base here. Okay. And uh, one thing I noticed is that they were they were in their combat fatigues, their camos, as you would say, and they did not have any sidearm. And I wondered if you could give me an explanation as to why sometimes they carry a sidearm and why sometimes they don't. Oh, well, my understanding uh, about the sidearm, Stan, is that uh, your typical soldier, your infantryman or so forth. Mm-hmm. Is not going to be issued a sidearm of any kind. But sidearms are in uh, in an infantry context only carried by uh, a small group of people. Your officers. I think you're going to have a sidearm if you are maybe if you're a loader. I'm not sure about that. Uh, but the sidearms you probably see out on the street are either MPs, military police people, mm-hmm. uh, or uh, they're on some kind of special duty where they're guarding airports or they're out there in a in a some kind of context, like an anti-terrorism context. Mm. I mean, this could have been na- National Guard for all I know. Yeah, they wouldn't have been given pistols either. I think mm-hmm. well, you, you, um, when you see... When you see somebody with a pistol on, it's it's fairly rare. Would be my, I mean, unless something dramatically has changed, but it, right. it it wasn't ever that every soldier got a got a pistol. And if they're just out like on break going to get lunch, right? I don't imagine they would have any kind of gun on them. Yeah, that's what they were doing. They were just getting lunch. Yeah, you know, and the, the thing about the army is that a lot of people in the army are not gun carrying army people. Mm-hmm. You know, they're out there back there with their typewriters, they're driving trucks, they're they're logistifying, they're logisticsifying. That's what they're doing. The army is 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 a massive uh, trucking operation. Yeah. You know that. Well, they do have lots of trucks. It seems like it's a hobby. Well, I mean, everything's a hobby, isn't it? If it doesn't, if it doesn't make money, then it's a hobby, right? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> if, you know, if it, as soon as it starts making money, you can say, well, it's not a hobby anymore. But if it's, if it costs you money, then it's definitely a hobby. Fishing definitely would be a hobby unless you like, now people are paying you to take you out on their boat. Now it's not, not a hobby anymore. Right, or you win one of those fishing derbies. Right, then you get a prize. Golf, very, you know, for for very, very few people can transition from a hobby to a life 
where you can make a lot of money. I knew a guy that was a pro golfer. Uh, and he ended up like most <clears throat> pro golfers. Like teaching at a golf course or something? Yeah, that's right. He was a golf <laughs> pro at a golf course. But for a while there, he was on the he was on the tour. He was out. You know, you forget about you forget about all the people that are ranked like 80th or even 20th. I mean, yeah. I guess the people that are ranked 20th, 20th you're see, still you're there. You're still making some good bank, I would think, from that. Yeah, I bet you are. I bet you're making good money and I bet you're on TV if you're the 20th ranked. But if you're 60th ranked, you're probably still making money. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're in the you're in the money, but I don't think you get nobody ever sees you on TV and there's so many things like that. People in baseball, people in all walks of life, I guess, that get up there, they're it, they, they made it to the show. They percolate around at at about 60. No, no, I, figure, I figure if you're well, if you're in the double digits rankings, you probably got got something going for you. Like you've got yeah, that oh, chance. Sure. You got a chance to break out. If you're twenty third in the country, you're doing amazing. If you're fiftieth in the country, I'd still think you're doing pretty good. Agreed. Agreed. If you're if you're above one hundred in anything, you got a you got a chance. You got a shot at the at the at the title. My sister was a nationally ranked skier for a time. I was I That's was nationally I ranked. You were nationally was, ranked? Well, yeah, it, because it because the ranking went all the way to 500. And um so I was like 483rd uh out of all the 15-year-olds that were skiing giant slalom. I did not know <laughs> any of this about you. For one brief moment, one brief shining moment in 1984, I was, uh, I got my name published in a giant, giant, giant list of names, but my sister was, uh, was way up. She was way, way up. That's cool. But she didn't, yeah, she didn't, it wasn't what she wanted to do. I mean, I guess that takes a lot of dedication, a lot of focus. Yeah, that you have you ever met? Have you ever known somebody who was, who was like truly gifted and just sort of felt uh, truly dr- drifted, uh, truly gifted but not driven? Hmm. Well, and wait a minute, my sister was really driven. It wasn't a question of being driven. I guess there. I guess it was a situation where she was truly gifted and didn't recognize that that wasn't always gonna it wasn't always gonna be like that you know that you didn't just touch stuff and it turned to gold forever (laughs) right but i've known a lot of people like that people that just had had a bushel of gifts and kind of didn't you know didn't pursue them either because like in in my sister's case she her her uh achilles heel was her um, defiance, right? Like she was successful at this thing. She was lauded for it. You know, as a young girl, she was surrounded by people telling her, you're going to be, you're going to go to the Olympics. And she was defiant. That was her, that was her main reaction to things. 
if you told her something, she would clench her fists at you. And she loved to win. She loved to win. She loved to beat the other girls. I don't know if you know much about downhill ski racing, but I, I know it's almost nothing about it. Less than nothing. Maybe it is a sport like worse than any country club sport, worse almost than anything, but probably competitive sailing in terms of being a sport that attracts people with tremendous feelings of entitlement. You know, like it is a rich kid sport right. and it is full of really just all the movies that you've ever seen that were like ski movies uh-huh. where the <laughs> rich kids were just snobs and just shitty people. All those John Cusack movies where he's dealing with snobs, 80s snobs. That's just who is that is the body of people that make up the sport of ski racing. Right, right. And, and we weren't we weren't rich. And we were just who we are, right? I mean, obviously, like, uh, my sister is a complicated person anyway, but she is not a snob and not a, not a fashion-driven, exclusivity-powered person. And she loved handing it to those girls, just beating them week after week. And they were so competitive and they had all the right gear and they were all friends with each other. And my sister just trounced them. It was gratifying to me just sitting on the sidelines going like, oh, they're, you know, the, like the amount of hate that those girls poured at her. And my sister just brushed it off just like with a wave of her hand, didn't care. But she she didn't care so much. And then, of course, then there's this this scrum of coaches, right? All these guys, former ski racers in their 30s who are like coaching youth right. sports. Right. And they're just like – and they were great to her, right? They weren't creeps. They weren't uh, – they were am- amazing coaches. A lot of them really great people. But Susan was standing in the center of this – circus and you know she kind of was her attitude was like well i just also want to be left alone and you know do what i want on saturday morning right right and it's a huge it's a huge huge commitment any kind of sport or activity or anything like that is just going to be like people don't realize it's it's all consuming. If you if you want to be really good or even halfway good, like it's something that you've got to make a priority at every stage of your life and that's just most people can't and don't don't want to but can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. She she just uh she could easily have done it because she has that kind of uh energy. Right. But I think it gave her great satisfaction to to turn her back on this thing that was the that was really the center of so many people's lives. I mean, all her competitors, this was all they cared about. A couple of them went to the U.S. Olympic team. Really, a couple of those girls that she fought these battles with went on to be the you know um, kind of central group in the U.S. Olympic ski team. Hmm. Uh, one kid from our ski club went and became the uh, gold, you know, multi gold medalist. Oh wow! Um, Tommy Mo, the great Tommy Mo, and he was, you know, he was in 
he's a couple years younger than me and on our on our ski team we skied together all the time so you know it wasn't implausible it was these these people that made up the US women's ski team were people that my sister trounced just you know beat them by a second like like humiliating defeats at my sister's hand but Susan just it gave her tremendous uh I think teenage gratification to say like, no, I'm not really interested in your dumb sport. <laughs> right. And I'm better at it, but you know, I don't care. Yeah. Right. I mean, I could kill you guys and go to the Olympics, but I feel like I've already proved that I could do that. So anyway, what's next? And she had this amazing, we were sitting and talking years later when she was in her thirties and she just sort of, my sister does not really express defeat. She's not defeatist and she doesn't, she's not, she doesn't express defeat, but she said, I realized maybe that's what I was meant to do. Like, well, like that maybe, was her, that was her chance. Well, just like, yeah, if you get, if you get put on the earth and you have the ability to go to the Olympics, that maybe that's what you do. You go to, I mean, cause Tommy Moe, uh, did go to the Olympics and won a bunch of gold medal in the downhill and super G and for the rest of his life, like there's a Tommy Moe Boulevard in the town that we grew up in. Really? And there you know, could have been a, a long, John Roderick sister Boulevard. Yeah. Susan Roderick Boulevard. Yeah. Um, I mean, and peekaboo street was not from our ski team, but she was from, uh, she was from Alaska. During right. That same right. Era. Right. So, you know, it was Alaska's moment. Like every once in a while you'll have an Olympics where, it's like, oh, wow, the ski team is really made up of people from Lake Placid right now. You know, their 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 program must be turning out great skiers. Or like when the Mare brothers were dominating skiing and they were from here in Washington. And, you know, you, the, you get this kind of thing. And then internationally, you know, every once in a while the Austrians will just be like murdering everybody. And there was a moment there in the in the early '90s where Alaska was producing all these world class skiers. So yeah, so she said, "What if you know? What if that was supposed to be my thing? And then the rest of your life, you'd kind of dine out on being an Olympian." Yeah, really. I wonder you though. Started, but I mean, like, does that? How long does that carry you financially? Well, I mean, you at first, I think you can like endorse a brand of peanut butter and open a Pontiac dealership. And <laughs> like at first you can do whatever you want for a few years. Everybody wants you to stand there and hold your Olympic medal. Yeah. But if you want to start a ski school and you have Olympic medals, you can do it. Right. And that people will, it's, it's that thing that I, that I, I guess I've talked to you about. I experience it all the time because I'm, because I have one little toe in the world of downtown. And I go to these events and I meet these people that work in business. Right. You know, but not like, not people hustling like, hey, you know, I'm trying to, you know, here's my card type of people. But like Chamber of Commerce, downtown city, tourism, um, the, the, the 
property owning tourism class of booster <laughs> city people that donate money to museums and you know like this world and they're they're like really super uncool just as a class they're just uncool they don't they don't understand but they are massive drivers of what goes down right because they make they make little choices that affect a lot of people and somebody like an olympic medal winning skier is a thing that that class of people is impressed by like they're not impressed by musicians of any kind right. unless it's unless it's somebody like yo-yo ma there, every once in a while, a musician will come up in the classical world, or will come up in a, you know, in a, in a pop context where it's like, oh, have you heard of this guy, Yo Yo Ma? Right. But that, but that's the that's the extent to which music penetrates them. <laughs> you know, there there are people in Seattle that still will say like, well, did you know Nirvana? <laughs> and and they've been living here the whole time, <laughs> right. So musicians don't matter to them at all. And, you know, uh, actors matter because of, because Hollywood actors matter. But th these people don't actually know about them or care about them, right? They understand they're important. And if Brad Pitt comes, of course, everybody knows. But they're standing there on the dais shaking Brad Pitt's hand. And what they're thinking is, this is going to really make money me shaking Brad, me having brad pitt here is really going to make money somehow right, right but an olympian is a thing that everybody understands and those people they grasp it you know like fundamentally an olympian is impressive and you don't have to know their you don't have to have seen their movie it's like, you want a metal racing scheme? You know, you don't have to have watched it. Yeah. And so I think if you have an Olympic medal, it will open doors for you forever, right? If there was somebody, let's say you and I were going to lunch and there was somebody at the next table and they had won the gold medal in rowing in 1938. Like, you would still be interested to, in talking to them, wouldn't you? I mean, wouldn't yeah. you want to go sit like, hey, sure. I just overheard that you were an Olympian. You know, can we join you? It's kind of like being a, a it's a lower level of being an astronaut. It's never going to wear off. And there are a few things like that. I mean, nobody cares about musicians, but if you have, if you can say like, oh, I won a Grammy award. I, <laughs> there are lots of people I know that have Grammy awards and some of them, I mean, are for best packaging, <laughs> but it doesn't matter. You know, you win a Grammy award. You don't have to say it's for best packaging. I mean, if somebody asks, but you can say like, yeah, I'm a Grammy award winner. My record had best packaging. Yeah. I know. I know uh, somebody whose uh, uncle is a Grammy award winner. He right here in Austin. Did he, was it for something better than best packaging? Uh, for mastering, audio mastering. There you go, right? Mastering, yeah. best mastering. And that that is that kind of category is like 
very much I – I don't want to say it's a, a popularity contest, but like there's an engineering wing of the Grammys and the people that vote in the engineering wing mm-hmm. have to prove that they have X number of engineering credits. So it's only nerds. You know, it's only the, the technical people in music. Right. It's the very few um, wild artists over there in the uh, in the producing and engineering wing, and so, but those people take voting pretty seriously. But you know, they're listening to the music and they're like, "Oh, the mastering on this is so amazing!" And it's like, "Wow, they're." It's not that they're listening to a record which they've heard three or four different passes at mastering, and they're like, "That's the better one." which is a thing that, you know, that I can do, right? Listen to a a record and a couple of different mastering jobs and say like, oh, this one really shines. Mm. But to listen to the five records that are nominated in that category and be able, not having heard any other version of them, to be able to compare them to one another and say like, this is the best mastering job, Mm. that's you know, I mean, they have better ears than I do for right, sure. sure. But like, that's very interesting. Um, th- those type of awards always really interest me. Like, wow. Like the Oscar for best focusing. Right. Right. The For best, like, for best. <laughs> I don't F-stop. think they break it down that. It'd <laughs> <laughs> be pretty funny though. The best steady cam. But so it's pretty, it's, I would love to win an, uh, a Grammy for best packaging. That would just that would just comport so much with my feelings about so many things. Like, I have a, I have a, I think a degree from the University of Washington that I've never opened, and I have a Grammy award for best packaging. Come at me, right. come at me, world. But you know, you know what? I'm unlikely to. I'm un- unlikely to be in the running for that because I put out a couple of records that had amazing packaging and. Never, nobody ever like submitted a, like it a fold fold out liner or something like that. Liner notes, pictures in there. Dan, have you ever seen one of my records in person? Uh, no, I have, but I have uh, I have digital versions of them. Uh huh. Uh huh. But I do have a I do have a record player, so you know if you had a vinyl one, I would I would play it quite a bit. My kids would like uh-huh. it. Uh huh. You do play vinyls? Oh yeah. Well, unfortunately, the record with the I have a I have a couple of albums that have a lot of liner notes. Dan, one of them has a twenty-two, twenty-three page booklet. What? One of them has. How would you that, fit that into the cassette tape version? It was not easy, and it was very expensive. I remember at the time we thought that we, our our attitude was that we were making works of art. And it's hilarious to think now that we were trying to make a CD packaging into like a something that was crafted. Yeah. But we really did want it to be a beautiful thing. That was kind of an era there in early 2000 where people were making books. They were getting back into the art of book binding. Um and people were making beautiful artifacts for their own sake. And it was like the book doesn't have to really have anything in it to justify 
being made into a beautiful book because that's actually the process that they were interested in, the beautifulness of it. I remember being in a position where I could have had I could have written a book that got made into this like tome. I mean, not not handwritten on vellum, but whatever the the printed, you know, like handset type and so forth. But I didn't I didn't want to write a book that was just nothing. I didn't want to just put my put some garbage into a book and you know, and if I had made that and I had that beautiful thing right now, I probably it would just be another thing I moved around my house and set coffee cups on. Right. But yeah, you should seek out our albums in person. And the problem is the most beautiful of them all in vinyl is now out of print. Right. But I'm talking to the people about getting it reissued. But there are three of our albums you can still get on vinyl. They're still in print. And um, they're all, every one of them, we took great care. Well, I, I can tell you that I, I this is this is something that I have wanted to uh, to do, and there was a point in time when I investigated trying to get them. Uh, we have a great record store here in town called Waterloo. I'm sure you've been to it. Yes, played it many times. They have um, they had yours, and they had On them vinyl? back in yes, uh, but they according to them they sold out in about 2013. Oh, yeah. uh, but apparently they, they claim cause I actually, um, asked that they could reorder them. So I guess, does that, is that true? Could they, could they reorder? Them? Yeah. yeah. Maybe I need to put in an order. Well, or they could try. I mean, I would be curious to see what happened if you went to Waterloo and said, order these records and yeah. they tried and yeah. they said, yes, we are able, they're on their way. Um, then report back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I want those things to be available to people, but also the the business is such that it's all about what have you done for me lately, right? And nobody yeah. nobody's going to keep the Long Winter's music on their shelves if we don't feel like we're – if we don't feel, feel to them like we're a current – active gunning for it artist. Like mm-hmm. I went to a record store here in Seattle the other day that has, it's a Seattle record store, first of all, and it has a big section called local artists. And there's no reason that they that they shouldn't have long winners records there, but it may be that they are not available. It may be that those LPs are out of print. I don't know. Honestly, that's kind of embarrassing. I don't know. We would like to say thank you to Pitney Bowes, Send Pro. Send, they, they do a great job over there at Send Pro. They have three times the features of uh, these other places, like I'm sure you've heard of stamps.com. That's what they do. They make it easy to send stuff. You can print stamps from your computer. You can ship stuff. You don't need special equipment. You don't have to go wait in line at the post office. You don't have to install any software even. It's so easy. They make it so easy and they make it so affordable. You can compare shipping rates and delivery times between USPS and all the other major carriers so that you know you're getting the best deal when you ship something. You can print paid shipping labels for USPS, UPS, you name it. You can track your shipments from the same place so you're not chasing down tracking numbers, chasing down websites to find out, oh, I got to figure out where this one went. No, no. 
They're smarter than all that. And they've negotiated special rates for SendPro users. Savings start at three cents per stamp. So you're saving money. Throughout this whole thing, you're saving money. And that's what they're all about. They want to make it easy for you to send stuff and they want to save you money. And they have a special deal for listeners of Roadwork. When you sign up, you'll get SendPro free for 90 days. You'll get a free 10-pound scale. And when your free trial is over, you'll get SendPro for only $5 a month. Again, I want to just sit here and compare it to Stamps.com, but Stamps.com is $15.99 a month. SendPro, $5 a month. SendPro, you get three times more features, one-third of the price. It's a good deal. And you never have to go to the post office again, ever. Time is money, right? This is a good business investment. It's a smart investment. So check it out. They made a special URL, pb.com slash roadwork. And when you go there, you'll get all this free stuff I told you about, including that scale. And uh, you'll also be supporting the show in the process, and we appreciate that. So go to pb.com slash roadwork. Save yourself some money and ship stuff smarter. Thank you very much to Pitney Bowes SendPro for supporting Roadwork. Uh, but they did, they did say that it took them a little while to sell out of them. So I think I just missed my chance because I was here in 2011. Uh, so I had a two-year window where I could have got them and, and failed. Uh, you may not know from the from you know not being so proximate to the uh, the music business, but to tell someone that it took a long time to sell out of their record is not a compliment. No, I I I I got that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't mean it in a bad way, but I'm just relaying what they told me. From they were notes. available. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe they just had you know they sold out of most of them and then just had one in the back because they were listening to it in the store. Yeah, that must have been what it was. You know, yeah. They played a lot because I'd hear it every time I went in there. Uh huh. Uh huh. Because right next to it is um, Twenty Four Diner, which is a great place. And so you know, you you give them your your name at Twenty Four Diner, and they say, "Okay, well, it'll be a forty five minute wait." And you're like, 45? Are you crazy?" And they say, "That's what it takes." And we'll we'll text you, and so then you go next door to Waterloo and you hang out, and then they play some John Roderick. And then you get the text, and then you go eat. This is what happens. I'm just... Yeah, oh, no, no, I've seen it. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. Yeah. Um, I've been through all those record stores. I've sat in all those cafes. It's 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 distant to me now. It's strange. It's only just recently has started to be long enough ago that. The, the immediate memories of it, of that whole life have started to just uh, go into soft focus a little bit. It yeah. was not very long ago that I still felt very, very much um, in that life. And it had just only been a while since I'd been to Austin mm-hmm. rather than now, how long has it been now? Well, it's been years since yeah. I've been to Austin. You're not going to recognize a lot of this place. It's changed so much, so much. Yeah. Even the last time I went, it was, the writing was on the wall, you know, from 2000 to 2009, the city changed so much. But I don't think I've been to Austin since, yeah, 2010, 2009. And so 
what for a long time felt like, oh yeah, I've just, you know, I just sort of took a little, took a little break. Yeah. But now I really feel like, I don't know. I'm not in that circuit anymore. So many of those record stores have closed. Uh, so many of the clubs have probably closed. Oh yeah. I bet it. The landscape is completely different. And you know, my friend Dave Bazan, who continues to tour relentlessly uh, across America at, at that same, you know, there are, there are bands I know that are still on tour, but they're not touring America like that. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, um, but, but Dave is and was then, right. So he has that connection to like, he was on tour in 2003 and he is on tour now. And he's been up and down those roads and there's not a single year has gone by that he hasn't been to Austin probably multiple times. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm still friends with him and we still talk to each other as though we are peers and contemporaries in music. But, but my, my, uh, my direct connection to it has, has gotten very soft it's like I used to <clears> – <throat> my band used to practice next door to a guy who was a a medic for the fire department. And he said one time he was like oh, – he was describing his day to us. And he was like, well, a body washed up on shore. And we had to go down and get this body. And when we got up close to it, we realized it had been at sea for a long time. <laughs> and it was still – in you know, in the shape of a body. But when we reached down to like lift it up onto the stretcher or whatever, you know, it had the consistency of like a very wet, soft sponge that, but also that didn't really hold together, you know, like getting it, getting it off the beach was not just as simple as picking it up. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I'm starting to feel like that's my, that is my connection to the music scene of, of America right now. <laughs> right. I am either I am the body or the body is uh, is the connection. Uh, if you could, if you could make the, the relationship into a physical thing, it would be that waterlogged body. Yeah. Lovely. I'm going down to Comic Con because, uh, because this is my career now, right? San Diego Comic Con. San Diego Comic-Con. I'm going there to play uh, a show with Adam Savage and Hodgman and Paul and Storm, my friends. uh, And we're doing a big theatrical show there. And so, and I am playing the guitar and singing. So it's like still in the game. Yeah. But it's such a different game. It's so different. Um, So un- so disconnected from Waterloo records, right? Like Hodgman, Adam Savage, Paul and storm. None of them will ever go into a Waterloo records, right? They're never going to go. They're not going to do an in-store there. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to play stubs, right? They're not going to know, any of the road managers of the other people that are playing stubs, they're not going to see those guys in the cafe and be like, Hey, I haven't seen you in six months. 
they're not going to, it's just like not the same world. And for forever, the, the two worlds didn't connect at all. There was mm-hmm. no zero overlap. And I but think see, I mean, to me, it just sounds like you're evolving really. Well, you know, you're not just doing the same old thing. You're doing, you're doing other things. How many of the people who 10 years ago, 15 years ago were in the music scene how many of them have gone on to play comic con or open a mall up for people or have an instagram or yeah that's do, true do the podcasts the opening the mall for people was <laughs> big time and not a lot of people get to do that kind of thing how many of them are king a king of their town true you know, True. you don't you don't just take one road and follow it. You you go wherever you're called. True. That's right, Dan. Well, earlier on when you said um when you said that if you don't or if you get paid for it, it's not a hobby. Mm-hmm. It um I had to sit and think about it and like almost all of my hobbies almost all the things you would describe as my hobbies I kind of do get paid for. Yeah. No, they're not hobbies. I mean, for most people like sitting around playing a guitar, that's at best, that's a hobby. That's a a money pit for most people. For you, it's, it's a gainful employment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, barely, right. Barely gainful, but you combine enough of them together. Like, and there it is, right? It's a job. Somebody, uh, somebody was, I mean, I get that all the time, right? What, what exactly do you do for a living? Yeah. What do you do for a living? Yeah. Now that I'm King Neptune, I'm meeting a lot of people. <laughs> now that I'm King Neptune. <laughs> I'm meeting a lot of people who want to know what the hell I do and for a living because. Haven't you always been King Neptune? Let's just be honest about it. Let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> but, the, but King Neptune is a job that is typically. Um, it's a title rather typically held for a year by somebody who can say in one word or less their job. Mm -hmm. What do you do for a living? Why are you King Neptune is the implied question. When people say, what do you do King Neptune? They're asking, how did you get this job or how, why, why are you, why are you a big deal? Right. You know? Yeah. What did you, what did you do to to earn this title? I'm a newscaster. I'm a Seahawk. I'm an actor. I'm a a uh, entrepreneur. Let's say that's the that's the fuzziest answer, right? And, you know, and I have to stand there and shrug and just, <laughs> why am I this? I I am this. I'm King Neptune. What are right. you talking about? Right. I always was. Right. I'm that's King not, Neptune first. Right. Anything else second. That's what you got to tell him. Well, how, how, what, what do you do? This. Yeah, that's right. This is this. a full-time thing for me. Here's what I do. Sometimes I lay in bed with nothing on but a sheet, mm-hmm. and I have a bath desk that I got at Ikea <laughs> that I have rigged up as a podcast booth. It has a computer and a microphone and headphones, and I put the bath desk over me and I podcast from bed naked 
And that's one of my jobs. I'm looking, I'm looking for the bath desk <laughs> from Ikea. I don't know if they still make it. It's, it's like powder blue. Uh-huh. It's like injection molded plastic. It sits on two little metal folding legs. And at some point, I don't know whether it's just in the nature of the thing or whether I put – I think maybe I put a bowl of hot food on it. And it, the plastic, which should be very sturdy, sagged. Mm. So although no damage to the surface. So now the microphone and the computer both kind of like slide toward the middle. Mm-hmm. But it's on, you know, it's on legs. Yeah, I had another one, a beautiful one made out of wood. I wonder, I should look for that. That would be a much better podcast studio than this one. Yeah. Because it had, it had slots for magazines and stuff. It was the type of thing you brought breakfast in bed to your wife who had just, who was recuperating from a long illness. What percentage of podcasts that you do are recorded in the tub? Oh, that happens so seldom. I've heard, I, I remember I've, the one time when you were doing it on this show, and I could hear the water in the background and the the all of that. I think that may have been the only time, maybe one other time. I think that was more of a stunt. I mm. was just trying to figure out if I could do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I've slipped pretty far. I used to get up in the morning and have a cup of coffee and drive into this into my office and sit down in my proper recording studio where you could hear the crows and the seagulls in the background. I remember. And now, you know, I, if we're recording at 12, I set my alarm for 1145. Right. I've really like, I've let myself go. Yes. Well, I mean, don't, I don't want you to feel bad about it. There is, there's something about me, Dan, where I'm going to feel bad. It's, it's just, it's just how it is. I'm going to feel bad about stuff. I'm not going to feel bad. Like I don't sit around feeling bad, but I'm going to feel, this has always been true. There is a way to look at this situation where I am able to podcast from my bed and say, I have triumphed. I have finally triumphed over every teacher that said uh, that I should do my homework. <laughs> I have finally triumphed over, of, over everything because I am, I'm doing things exactly how I want, which is requiring the least effort possible. Mm -hmm. And on one hand, I do take satisfaction in it, but I also feel bad. I just feel I'm never going to look at this and say, well done. I'm always going to look at it and say, really, (laughs) really guy. And it's, uh, it's the constant battle between past John and future John. What, what, What is, what are the defining characteristics of past John versus future John? Well, at the center, it's at the center is present John and present John is haunted by past John, by the decisions that past John has made. Mm -hmm. Past John has made some terrible decisions. Uh, 
present John has to deal with it mm-hmm. and has to be in that situation where it's like, ah, now it's 12 and I've only been awake for five minutes. If past John had just decided to get up at 1130 instead of 1250 or instead of 1150, I would have had that extra 20 minutes to get stuff done. God damn you past John. Why didn't you make a better choice? And present John is just so like hamstrung by these terrible decisions that past John has made. And he's like, not just mad at him, but frustrated by him feels like hobbled Mm. by this inconsiderate person who either a long time ago or really just recently made some choices that, that just really limit what present John can do. And then present John has a lot of resentment for past John and uh, oftentimes, you know, present John is kind of a little bit petty and he takes out that resentment on future John. Like you almost are punishing yourself in the future. Well, it's not me. It's future John. It's not me. It's some other person, this guy that's out there somewhere who's going to have to deal with it when it comes to him. And so present John often, often is kind of small and selfish and says, you know, if I make this pot of coffee now, well, only future John benefits from it. Right? Like making a pot of coffee is a big operation that I have to do, but I don't get any coffee for it. Future right. John gets the coffee. Right. And that's an interesting so, way to think of it, but you don't you don't make the connection between those two points in time that it's still you? The three people are completely unrelated, Dan. Uh-huh. Future John, present John, and past John have never met a single time. They have no relationship to each other except in this sort of transference of opportunity and option this is a very buddhist philosophy i I must tell you but i suppose you know that no i have no i have no uh idea of its connection to buddhism to me it is to me it is a very very frustrating like wormhole that the three people are in that and the relationship they have to one another and then when the thing is when future john becomes present john Again, he's – it isn't that future John has changed. It's just that present John I – mean, present John's always – it's – yeah, I guess from a standpoint of Siddhartha, right? Like mm-hmm. you sit on the bridge and you're watching the river and the river is the same, but the river's always different. Like the state of Johnness is is the river. First there is a mountain, Dan, and then there is no mountain. Mm-hmm. And then there is a mountain. So the reason that I'm laying here in bed podcasting on a bath desk that I bought initially thinking that it would be good in the bath, but it was too small for the bath is because past John has done me a considerable disservice starting at eight o'clock in the morning, which was that past John never wants to get up. Mm Mm-hmm. And get going. 
And so here I am, right? Just like laying here instead of being at an office, instead of being president of the United States. But, you know, what, I mean, the things that I do for, for future John are a lot. I do a lot for him. And he, I don't think is very grateful. And sometimes, you know, he deserves what he gets. Sometimes he deserves unenjoyment. You would think, though, that you would want to always set yourself up for success and for enjoyment and for, for positive things. Anytime you had the opportunity to do something for yourself down the road, wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you do that? You would, yeah, you would think if yeah. the people that you were dealing with weren't such assholes. Meaning your future and past self? Yeah. But maybe they're assholes because of what you're setting them up for. Well, maybe they are, but... but wouldn't i mean may, you know if somebody if somebody does you wrong and you get pissed off about it you're not really being an asshole you're just being a human being but if you're doing it to yourself you know you can end you can end that you can stop the domino effect easily no it's not my responsibility somebody else i mean wh- <laughs> why do these guys get away with it like what it should have been past john that that made the you know they should make some sacrifices. But too. there is only present John. There is no past or future. There is only right now. I'm telling you right now, I'm, I'm thinking about what I'm going to say to past John when I get off this phone. But you can't say anything to him. It's still just you in the present. No, I can yell down the tube. He can hear it. But that make you understand that that doesn't work that way. Even if he hears it, he you can't. There's no gratification from it. Well, I get and you would that. also remember if you did that, and you don't, so you haven't. Well, I wouldn't remember it because that I, uh, that would be yelling up the tube at future John, and I hardly ever do that. But if something if, happened if, in the past, if you yelled, if you yell at yourself in the future the, at your past self, then you'd remember it now. No, if you yell at your future self, then when you when your future self becomes your present self, you will remember having been yelled at. But that's the but same yelling, thing as the past yelling at, at the future and the present, that, too. But that's not happens. I yell down the tube at past self. But then present he, self is the only one who can hear that. Past self can't hear No, no, no. That. Past self hears it. But past self, but I have no memory of what past self hears. Then it hasn't the happened. But then it hasn't happened. You've negated no, it. No. Because no, anything no, that you do toward the past you still remember in the present and the future. No, you don't remember. Oh, I guess you do remember it in the future. Right. That's right. All the conversations I've ever had with past John, future John will know. He will remember. It's getting kind of confusing. Well, it makes perfect sense to me. Imagine a culvert. Okay. Have you ever crawled into the culverts under the street? I'm going to have looked down in there, but I haven't, you know, as a kid, I probably did. Yeah. I'll say yes. Did you have open gutters, open gutters on the side of the road where you were growing up? You know, it depends. I lived in the city. Uh, you didn't have them in Philadelphia. I know that. For sure. Yeah. I lived in a city there and then we had lots of, see, we had lots of canals in Florida. Oh yeah. And they would dry up periodically and then there would be the culvert theirs i'm sure i've been in my share of culverts but it wasn't you know there's snakes down in there oh right right of course in snakes. florida anyway 
I uh, it, growing up in Seattle before we moved to Alaska, I lived in a neighborhood that had open trenches on the side of the roads that fed into sort of uh, culverts at the end of the street that took the water down into the sewers, right? But the ditches, we called them ditches. And the ditches, you know, they're not like irrigation ditches or anything. They're just, we didn't have sidewalks in that neighborhood. Uh And the water just, you know, it rains here a lot and the water would run into the ditches and, and then it would eventually find its way into a, into a pipe. But the ditches were big. As a kid, you, I mean, we played in the ditches and if you got down in a ditch and kind of ducked down, your head was below the road. Like you could hide in a ditch. They were, they were big. You could play in them all day. And we did. And if it was raining or if it recently rained, then the ditch would be a river and you could get down in the ditch and build little dams and float little boats. And if it was raining hard, the ditches were a a river that became dangerous. And all the parents were always worried that we were going to get down into the ditch and get swept away by the water because sometimes the ditches filled up. And that was crazy when the ditches were full because the water was moving. And at the end of the street, there were these big pipes. Mm -hmm. And I think when I was really young, they were metal corrugated metal pipes and then they were replaced with concrete at a certain point and they were big enough pipes that you could not even crawl in them but you could kind of like stay on your feet and crouch down and like et walk (laughs) into them (laughs) and uh When you got older, a little bolder, like when you're five, you didn't want to go in there. It was full of dragons, right? But when we got a little bit older, seven, eight, Mm -hmm. like, yeah, we went in there. Yeah. And you, you do your little walk down to the center of the street and then you're at an intersection and you can go right. And in our case, we never went right. Because right went into the darkness Mm. and did not seem like it went into the darkness and up because our, we lived in a valley, but to the left, you could go left. And there was a, there was a big intersection there where the gauge of the pipe went up considerably. And there was a manhole cover above that let in light. And in that space, there was a kind of little cathedral, like under the street, a, a little room, Mm -hmm. I guess, that had pipes coming in from all directions, a junction, and you could stand up in it. And it was you know, it was the magical place and other kids weren't going to follow you down there. You could, you know, it was just for the big kids. And by that, I mean, the eight year olds. 
Um, and from that space, you could see up the pipes to everywhere in the neighborhood. And that is the space that present John inhabits. That's where you are. I get it. And I can shout down the culvert out, you know, to past John, who's looking in from outside, watching what's happening. But future John is up some dark, up some dark pipe. He's only, he's only imaginary. Past John's looking at me. He's looking at me all the time. I'm looking at him. So we're in, Past John and I are in much closer communication. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I feel a little bit of resentment ab- about future John. He's just, you know, he's just reaping the, I'm the one out there plowing the field, planting the seed. Mm-hmm. And then nature grows the seed and then he eats the seed. Where does he get off? But eventually it's you eating it. No, it's him eating it's it. It's still you. I mean, I'm eating some stuff now that past John made. It did a shabby job at making. That doesn't have anything to do with future John. I'm not sure why this is difficult for you to understand. No, I understand it. I'm just saying I don't. I don't think it's productive. Oh, <clears throat> unquestionably, it's not productive. <laughs> was were you thinking that I was describing this as something that I thought was beneficial or good or or recommended? No, it's awful. This is my. This is my. My, is this something you dwell on? Do you think about this a lot or is it just the, the nature of your existence? Yeah, it's just the conversation that I'm always having. Yeah. Where I'm going, ah, fuck you. Why did you why did you lay this out here and then not put it away? Who am I talking to? I'm not talking to myself. I'm talking to myself from two days ago when I put it out there and didn't put it away. I get I definitely get that. Yeah. Have you ever tried, instead of the resentment thing, tried doing something nice for future John? I do it all the time. I make, I make a pot of coffee almost every day. Yeah. I just don't, like, I'm not unaware of the fact that he's going to exploit it. But I do it for him. Like, I, I help him out all the time. I do laundry. I <clears throat> Sometimes I do put things away, although not very often. Um. You know, one thing that past John does all the time is he agrees to do shows. Mm-hmm. Like performances he, or podcasts? All of the above. He agrees to, he agrees when people write him and say, do you want to do a thing? He says, yes. Yeah. And he is doing that on behalf, I think, of future John. He's trying, he's skipping me. He's, he's trying to do things for future John. It's me <clears throat> that suffers because past John has agreed to do a show. It's future John's responsibility to do the show, but I have to sit in between there and feel the anxiety of an upcoming show. And future John is going to have a blast playing the show. That's not in any question. And when the show opportunity came, it was easy for past John to say yes, because it's like, sure, I don't have to play that show. 
Future John does it. <laughs> right. And, you know, Future John's going to get paid. This is a this is a, a thing he's doing on behalf of Future John. He's, you know, it's a gift to him, but it doesn't take anything. But then me, I have to sit and fret. Fret, fret, fret. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I fret about a show right up until it happens. And, you know, then whatever, I can enjoy it. Future John, of course, is going to get paid, but. I know exactly what you're talking about. And that used to be, I would almost call it a habit of mine to agree to things or agree to do things very nonchalantly. You know, oh, you know, will you come and speak at this conference? Yeah, I'd love to come and speak. And, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, like walk around up on stage and talk about something nerdy that I like. And, and then, you know, like the, the three, four days beforehand, you're like, Oh man, this is really going to suck. Like now I've really got to work on something. And now I only have like a day to do it before I go. And then I gotta, I gotta stay in that crappy hotel. Cause it's not going to be good. And I gotta rehearse this stupid thing. Do you and rehearse I, things? No. Well, why did you just claim that you have to rehearse things? Because when I do something like that, I have to rehearse it. But in so, normal life, I don't rehearse anything. Well, I know, but in a thing like that, you do rehearse. I, I, I do with great, great reluctance and w- a great deal of embarrassment. Because Even if nobody's in the room, you still are embarrassed yes, at rehearsing. Yeah, absolutely. And Absolutely. do you like, do you perform into a mirror like they tell you to do? God, no. Oh my God. Never. I'm in front of the mirror as briefly as possible. It's like I'm sitting Shiva. I don't ever want to look in a mirror. I just wouldn't get out of there. If I need to look at a mirror for 30 seconds in the morning, that's the, that's it. I'm out. So let me ask you this. When you have done something that you think is questionable. Yeah. Let's say you've done something. You're like, I don't know. Or you're planning something where you're like, I don't know if I can really a hundred percent get behind this. I feel like I'm going to go ahead and do it, but I feel like I might be. Yeah. I don't do it anymore. I've, I've learned my lesson. I have a very strict set of rules. Now my answer is almost always no, almost always instantly. No, but, but I'm talking about like, even something in your own life where you're like, I shouldn't be about to do what I'm about to do. Like, let's, let's just call it eat a piece of cake. Mm. I'm about to do this. Mm -hmm. I'm about to eat this piece of cake. I shouldn't do it. Do you ever pass by a mirror and give yourself a, a reproachful look? No. Do you ever look in the, do you ever look in the mirror and say like, what are you up to, mister? You better, you better mind your P's and Q's. No. Until you until you can't meet your own gaze anymore and turn away in shame? No. I can do I can meet my gaze fine. You can. You can just you you sleep soundly. You're just it's it's, it's easy easy to be Dan. No, no, it's not easy to be Dan, but I don't find like I don't think of my I, I don't think of myself in this sort of trifecta the way you think of yourself past present future 
I very much am focused more on uh, on what's going on, kind of right right now. Uh-huh. I mean, that's not to say I don't plan or or stress, which I do about the future, but I don't uh, I don't have a lot of conversations with myself anymore. I used to. I used to have the constant narration going on in my brain and the the constant conversation of talking to myself. Uh, in my own head a lot of the time uh, the the ongoing narration um but no after after about the third or fourth year of my meditation practice that finally sort of started to to fall away a little a little bit and that was very helpful for me that kind your, of your, thinking your conversation with yourself started to go away with meditation yes at, at long last it it started to still there. I mean, I'm not, you know, not a perfect being, but that unnecessary constant thinking narration, talking to oneself, I was able to begin to, to, you know, let that fall away, which is incredibly rewarding. And it's replaced by just the sound of wind. Whatever, whatever's going on right now, more observing than, that constant. Did you do you do that constant narration and sort of talking to yourself and all that nonsense? It's tiring. You do that for 30, 40 years and it sucks. I'm not sure what, you know, everybody must be saying different things to one another yeah. or to themselves rather. It's but, not necessary. You don't have to, you don't have to do that. That's, that's well, ex- an optional thing. Except it's like the great joy of my life. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, feel the, like you're you're you you are in some ways I think have a very rich life in your in your own mind. You yeah. exist you have a a wonderful playground there and you entertain yourself, you are in great conversation with yourself at all times. It would well, seem like, like just from from knowing you for a short period of time, it's, this is how it seems. My relationship with Past John is one of friendship. <laughs> like I'm, we have a uh, we have a fraternal relationship where we're we're poking at each other all the time. But I like the guy. I understand where he's coming from. He has interesting he has interesting ideas about what the future is going to look like that are often wrong, but. But, uh, but I still think he's pretty fascinating. Mm-hmm. And of course I want future John to succeed. Right. I, uh, when I was on my walk across Europe, this was the major theme. Um, because there are a lot of conversations I have in my head, which are thwarting. And as I walked, there wasn't anyone else to talk to and there wasn't anything else to focus on. I mean, you know, you can be incredibly observant of your present moment, listening to the birds tweet and the gravel under your feet Mm. for miles and miles and miles and miles, day after day after day of walking. I can imagine. But as you know, from meditation, that is very fertile ground for voices. Yes. And for months, I walked along in conversation and as 
as time went on, it was, it was quite evident that I was talking not just to myself, mm. but that there were multiple people, mm-hmm. both that I was talking to, but also that were doing the talking. So that it wasn't just that I was arguing with different voices, but that there was a pitched argument between multiple people happening inside of my own head and who I was in that conversation was often unclear because clearly I am, I was observing and I could interrupt, but also it was I who was talking to I and who was I going to interrupt in that situation? Right. And so because I had this, I mean, essentially I was meditating for nine hours a day because I walked, you were, you were doing walking meditation. Essentially. I walked from sunup to sundown without talking to another person. Right. And it was infuriating because a lot of those conversations were very circular. Mm -hmm. I can imagine. There were, there were people, well, there are people in me who express a lot of dominance. There are other people who are very passive. There's a lot of sly operation. There's quite a bit of baiting. Um, And the dominant voices are not wise. And the wisest voices are often not active Mm -hmm. in the sense that they don't, they don't take action. They don't, you know, they're content to observe, which is often not helpful. And so for months and months, I've waged this parliamentary uh, style of like argumentation where it was happening behind a curtain. I couldn't see anyone's faces. I, I learned to distinguish individual voices and give names to them. And as, as a result, I was able sometimes to say, okay, you know what? You've had your time and you need to shut up now. <laughs> Um, and let other people, <laughs> right. The other, the other people, let give them a chance, you know, and I would say, I would focus on these, on the quiet ones sometimes and say, you've been quiet for a long time. I know you've got something to say. What the fuck is it? And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't fully anthropomorphizing these voices and saying like, it's the one in the hat. Now let's hear from old Ruby lips. <laughs> you know, it was like, it was, it was in a fog. Um, but like the, the, the kind of a tipping point moment for me was I was walking in the Czech Republic and it was the middle of July. It was wonderful. It was just wonderful there. The cherries were all in bloom or the cherries were all ripe. It was very hot, but there was a lot of shade on the side of the road and I would walk in the hot for a while and then I'd go sit under a tree, eat cherries walk some more Czech Republic is beautiful. It's really the, the crazy thing about central Europe is that we think of, 
you know, all of the, a lot of wars have been fought there and, and, um, there's a reason for it because it's, it's incredible turf. Like the Czech Republic is a paradise and the Czech people don't think of it that way. They're Slavs and they're fatalistic and they feel like, oh, well, it never works out for us. And that's kind of one of the beautiful, they're real Eeyore culture. And it's one of the things that makes it beautiful there. You know, they're, they don't, they're not super ambitious. I mean, given the wealth, the material wealth and the cultural wealth of the Czech Republic, it should be the center of Europe in every respect. But they're just writing plays and they're sort of, you know, they spend their summers out in a cabin that's half built and has been half built for 80 years. You know, it's a it's a place I really gravitate to. But I'm walking along and it's hot and I look in the distance and on the side of the road, there's a little heap. It's a long way off. And I'm like, what's that? You know, and I'm in the middle of this 40 person conversation. And I'm like, what's that heap up there? And so as I'm talking to myself, I'm also, I have something to look at this heap that's slowly approaching. And as I get closer, I see it's a person, but they're not walking toward me. They're standing. And those are key different, you know, key distinction, right? If you're, if you're walking all day alone and you see someone walking toward you on the road, You have a long time and they have a long time to think about what you're going to say. Like here comes a person and they are also walking and we're going to meet. And even when they're, you've been watching them for an hour and then they're finally within like eye shot and you both kind of like nod or you hopefully nod. Hopefully you haven't been walking towards somebody for an hour and a half and they walk past you without saying anything. But this is a person who's standing still And that's a whole other thing because if you're standing still, if you're walking and someone's walking toward you, you have a lot of commonality. Neither one of you are where you're going. Like you're both doing the same thing and who knows where either one of you is headed. He could have been walking from Istanbul to Amsterdam. Right. Sure. But if you're standing somewhere, you're minding, you're minding a spot. You're there for a reason. You're either waiting for a bus, mm-hmm. you wait, you're waiting for something, or you're minding. So I get closer and closer to this person, and and as part of my like long dialogue, and what's happening in my parliament is that somebody's mad about something that somebody said to me 14 years ago that they want to rehash, and somebody over here has got, you know, also wants to introduce a bill where uh, we all agree that my plan for the future is to have a nationally syndicated radio show. And then someone over here wants to, you know, wants to re like re argue the idea that this whole plan of walking across Europe is dumb. Like everybody's, you know, everybody's shouting at each other. It's like, it's like a, a a scene from wall street all the time, but there's also this lump (laughs) that's coming. I'm walking toward this lump and it turns into a person. And then pretty soon I see that it's an old woman. And as I get closer, I see it is an old woman sitting at a fruit stand. Now, I'm the only person on this road. There have been a couple of like broken down little local truck type vehicles that have driven by in the last hour and a half. But 
this is a this is kind of a weird scene. She is standing here at this fruit stand, which is just a crate with some fruit on it, waiting for a customer. And I am walking along. It is 100 degrees outside. And I am absolutely the target market for this little old woman. I mean, she could be a witch for all <laughs> I know, right? This for could sure. be a she could, I mean, why is this woman here selling fruit? But here she is. And so all of a sudden now the whole parliament's attention is directed to this upcoming moment. I'm going to walk up to this woman. I'm going to say hello in the Czech language. I'm going to say Dobry Den or whatever. She's going to say hello back. I'm going to stand there with a smile on my face while she smiles at me. I'm going to pick some delicious fruit. I'm going to pay her money. I'll overpay her because she's a little old woman at a fruit stand in the middle of a hot summer day. And then I get to go walk along consuming this delicious fruit. And I'm working this out, and she's still a long way away. So I have a long time to walk slowly toward her, framing this conversation. And everybody's got something to say. The whole parliament's <laughs> got something to say about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's like a pretty simple deal. And now she is within eyeshot of me, and she looks and smiles, and I look and smile. And as I get right to her, a voice like comes out of the gloom, clear, shining voice in my head that says, you know what? You haven't walked long enough today to have earned any fruit. And I tip my hat at this woman and walk past her and keep walking. And immediately the parliament springs into action and says, what? <laughs> like there's a moment of silence and then just like rage, like a, like the, like a Roman Senate raging at Caesar. <laughs> what are you talking about? There's, this was the fruit opportunity for the day. And plus, it's only the two of you on this road. You've been walking toward her for miles. What are you talking about? I don't deserve the fruit. Mm. But I'm still walking. I'm still walking away from her. And by the time I look back, she's looking at me. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at her, but I'm now, I, my decision is made. I can't turn around and go back says chorus of voices. Right. Even the ones that are super furious agree that you can't like turn around and slink back to her. Imagine from her perspective, she's like, well, here I am sitting in the hot sun with a headscarf on. Maybe I'll sell a peach today. Here comes a guy <laughs> just walks on by. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Nice. Hello. Have a nice day. I guess I'll keep waiting to sell this this peach to somebody else because that guy too good for it or something. Didn't have the money maybe. Didn't have the fucking 30 cents. Right. And so the, the entire rest of the day, I am 
uh, I'm in the middle of a Reichstag that is trying to figure out what the fuck just happened Mm -hmm. and how such a simple operation as I am hot and tired. I am walking. I meet a local person who is selling something I want and I'm going to buy it and have a pleasant exchange and have a nice like moment of the day with uh, where I exchange pleasantries with another human being. And the person that said, I don't think you have walked far enough to deserve fruit yet today was also expressing, you know, he, uh, that person, that voice, and I'm not sure it's a he even, but that voice had made a coalition with some quieter voices and the quieter voices were the ones that are like, I don't want to talk to anybody. That person had cast their vote secretly in committee with you haven't deserved voice. Right. I don't want to talk to anybody. And there, then another quiet voice that's like, well, what if, well, what if, What if the fruit is bad? What if you pay too much? What if you pay too much and the fruit is bad? What if you talk to her and you regret stopping? And those what if voices, there's quite a few of them. And they're, you know, this like chorus of little rats. But all these people had worked together unbeknownst to me. So that when it came time to shout this like exclamation, don't stop. There was quite a bit of support for it um, uh, amongst this, uh, you know, like a, a whole, a whole, well, enough of the, enough of the parliament was behind it that it overruled logic. It overruled all the other side that was sensualist and was like, can't wait for this fruit. Oh, boy. <laughs> and at that point, which was three months into a six and a half month walk, I started to recognize that this parliament was a badly run, poorly managed operation that was. Uh, that was making bad decisions that was insensible in a lot of cases. And this deliberation was, um, was a lot of strum and drong. It did signify nothing. <clears throat> and ultimately that was a simple, that was a simple decision. Stop, get some fruit, mm-hmm. keep going. Sure. And so for the rest of the walk, I was at war with that parliament and the rest of the walk across. Yeah. For, for that long, four more months. Oh my God. I was telling them to shut up and pay attention and shut up. And they would each in their turn have their moment where they made a special plea to me for their validity and for their, you know, and for how important it was that I take their counsel because what if, and I just one after another shouted them down like hourly shouted them down until basically the only voices were exhaustion, fear, hunger, 
um, like all sorrow was gone because I just shouted all of it down. All shyness was gone because I shouted it all down. And I was just at a level of, you know, somebody would walk up to me and say, do you want a tomato? And I would say, yes, thank you. And they would say, do you want to come to my house? I have more tomatoes. And I would say, I'm following you. And it was just like, uh, it was tremendous to recognize that because I sat behind my desk and every one of those voices came in, they each had an appointment, they each sat down and made their case. And in each case, I said, you are forcibly retired. Here, here's your, you know, clean out your desk. Um, and it's how I survived it. You know, it's how I survived it for a hmm. great long period there. I was, I felt just like there was no me left. Hmm. Um, but I had this thing I was walking. So I wasn't just laying in a, uh, like a, a ditch staring up at the stars. I was I had stuff to do. I had a uh, stuff to do. I heard, just heard something in the background, Dan, that sounded like a slop bucket. Are you feeding the pigs? No. I dropped my spoon. Oh. It just sounded to me like a bucket. But I guess it was just a spoon. Uh, see, I've, I've transported myself to Central Europe now where you where hear a lot of – Finding a bucket would be a normal, a normal thing. Yeah, you hear a lot of bucket sounds there in, in southern – Central and Southern Europe. Lot, there are a lot more buckets in play. Although I suppose if we were in Iowa, there'd be buckets all over. It's just that in Seattle, there we've eliminated buckets, or you you see a, you see a lot fewer buckets here as part of your daily life. Four months that went on, though. Yeah, and eventually, the thing is, when you come back to the world. When you're not in the quiet like that and when you have when you're not alone and when you're not focusing on that conversation all the time, you realize like, oh, that parliament's going all the time. You just don't hear it. You don't hear this quiet voices at all. You don't recognize them as voices, right? You think like I'm I'm shy. You don't recognize that that's a voice. Right. That, that's a shy voice. When you say like, what if you don't realize that those are there's like seven what ifs. They're like a chorus of mice. Um, and that they, and each one of them is individual, right? There's the, what if this bad thing happens? Then the other one is like, yeah. And what if this worst thing happens? And there's a, you know, one of the mice is like, but what if it's amazing? And that mice is, <laughs> mouse is always like all those, what ifs you don't. So the individuation of all those voices goes away and you don't recognize like, oh, these are legitimately separate personalities. They don't get along with each other. They have very different agendas for some reason I can't explain. But they're also me. And so in the noise of living in the world, all of that is concealed because you have so much else to do and there's just sound all around you and you're thinking about. And so all that happens is, I mean, they are all still there and their input is the same, but you just register it as your own thoughts or your own 
your authentic self who says, well, you haven't done enough today to deserve a bowl of fruit. Right. And you're go- like, okay, that's me talking or like, yes, I, I hear and obey. You're not able to say like, who the fuck are you? Like, how did you get out of your cage? Right. And a lot of the time that voice is somebody in a Napoleon hat with one hand stuck inside their jacket, um, suffering from some tremendous insecurities and, and, um, re- but, but at the same time, really trying to assert itself. When I saw the movie, um, what was the movie about the little uh, the cartoon movie about the little girl that had four different personalities, different colors in her head oh, driving um, her. Yeah. 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 The Pixar movie. Yeah. Pixar driving, driving her from inside a control, uh, surface. Mm-hmm. It was just like, well done Pixar once again. Yeah. Inside out. I think it's called inside out. Never. Seen well that. done at, at describing, um, at describing this and, you know, what a lovely way to put it right They're driving. And, uh, and that's an, that's an age old one, I guess, uh, to think of inside your head as being a, a, uh, the bridge of a ship and you've right. got this little team that's in there driving it, I guess much better for kids than to do a film where there's a giant Reichstag inside your head and people are, uh, you know, people are denouncing one another and they're like, and, and like dueling out in front with sabers. That's a maybe a less good way of describing it, but so now I can only imagine that all of that stuff has reassembled itself. All the all that parliament is re has you know seated itself again. But I had enough time where I was able to war with them and individually like go down the line and say, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet, just be quiet. That's all I ask. Be quiet. And they would go, but, but, but and I'd say quiet, just quiet, just, just quiet, please. I do not want to think about that one time five years ago when that one guy came into the store where I was working and put his money down on the counter in a way that I took to be an insult. I do not want to think about that now. Right. There's nothing I can do about it. It's not helpful. I know you think it's important. I know you've got this, like you've got this bill that you keep reintroducing session after session after session where we're trying to decide what to do about that guy, but it's, it's gone. It's gone, man. Um, I had enough time doing that that I I still I don't know I'm still liberated a little bit from the from the tyranny of that group 